I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, Episode 12, The Right of Sodomy. I need and want to make this statement before going any further. My colleague and up-until-now friend Mike, just joking Mike, yeah right, has suggested to me that my voice and these podcasts might be too soothing and monotoned and putting some people to sleep or in a trance. I already told Teresa to resist being hypnotized by my voice and waking up when I snap my fingers, standing on her head or doing some other outlandish thing. He said that I should put more inflection in my voice and liven my podcast up as though I were a radio announcer or a guy selling Ginzu knives or slices and dices or other items on TV or a carnival barker to all of you lot lice drawing people into his sideshow attractions, or a used car salesman hyping and falsely promoting his lemons for the suckers to buy, or a glad-handing politician trying to sell his product himself to the voters. Little did he know until now that hypnotizing all of these listeners by my podcast was my evil scheme right from the beginning of these podcasts, because I'm also putting subliminal messages into these podcasts to hypnotize my listeners into buying my set of Ginzu knives, fruit and vegetable slicers and dicers, boiling eggs in the shell pods so that they don't have to be bothered with messy eggshells and can just tap the shells and the hard-boiled eggs come right out and ready to be sliced and diced which I had the products to help them to do too. Used cars, my mayoral or gubernatorial or presidential candidacy, uh, or anything else that I can come up with to sell to these people. So you see, putting more inflection in my voice would ruin all my schemes and bring them out of hypnosis, and I couldn't do that. I will hypnotize them and him with this podcast to make them forget all about this confession of my intentions here. Also, if I put all the inflection and hype in my voice that this subject truly deserves, I would be screaming in anger at these sick and perverted priests and bishops, cursing them out with every obscene and profane word and expression that I could come up with, and that's all of them, performing destruction rituals against them, as I know very well and efficiently how to do, making the most obscene gestures toward them and telling my listeners about that instead of not telling them about those gestures as I'm not doing now, and they would just have to take my word for it. But I don't want to contribute to this anger against such people and rather want to speak peacefully and soothingly to people about these sickos and not aggravate and stir them up even more about such perverts. Besides which, my voice is naturally just as you hear it here, and I don't want to try to hype it up like all the slick con men's and Sharpie's voices mentioned above and do impressions of famous people and cartoon characters and figures out of my own imagination just to try to make my podcast more interesting and keep my listeners from falling asleep. If you can't help falling asleep, while listening to my podcast, keep your credit cards, cell phones, and checkbooks beside you because you're going to need them. 
Hyping my podcast is too much work and trouble just for something that I'm doing because I believe in fighting these sick priests and bishops and I shouldn't have to sound any certain way and go through all of these gymnastics, hyperbole, and histrionics in order to do that. Hurry, 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 ladies and gentlemen, come and listen to the amazing, the colossal, the stupendous. Forget all that. I'm 65, soon to be 66 years old, have dentures which I hardly ever or just never wear to explain my voice still further because I can't keep them in my mouth, have had two heart attacks, three bouts of congestive heart failure and kidney failure, and very often get tired and out of breath easily, and so can't do all of those things that Mike is suggesting that I do. Such showmanship and salesmanship is satanic anyway, and if I'm fighting against Satan, the Satanism of pederast and homosexual priests and bishops, what sense would it make to put back with one hand what you're taking out with another and pour water into a sinking boat while bailing it with your other, out with your other hand and advocate the practice the satanic showmanship and salesmanship while opposing satanic pederasty and homosexuality in the church. That is working at cross purposes. Mike also suggested that I ring a bell or otherwise indicate my going from one part of my podcast to another. Uh, anyone who seriously can't tell the difference between my reading from the right of sodomy homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel and my reading my own comments and my reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church and mistakes one for another wouldn't be helped if I rang Big Ben in London or sounded a tornado alarm between each part, much less rang a little bell or made a brief announcement since our writings sound nothing alike. If someone leaves the room where they are listening to my podcast without pausing it to go to the restroom or to the kitchen to get something to eat or for whatever reason and come back and it doesn't sound like the same material that they were listening to when they left, just roll back the podcast to what you remember listening to and start again from there. You know, why do I have to figure these things out for people when they should be able to figure do that for themselves? If some of them want to think that all of my podcast is just reading from Randy Ingalls' book, let them go ahead and think that. I'm not here to babysit anyone, but just to present the truth from her book and my comment, my comments and the catechism of the Catholic Church and let them figure it out from there. I don't mind so very much a brief announcement or even ringing a bell for each before each part of my podcast and will try to do so for those who can't figure it out on their own. But I don't want to impersonate again a Swiss bell ringer or one of the Von Trapp family singers in The Sound of Music just to sell Randy Ingalls' books and my podcast. If this doesn't sell itself without all the hype and histrionics, those things just propping it up won't really sell it either, since it is those things that people will be buying, the packaging and presentation, not the subject itself. I don't want to ride a unicycle on a high wire around my apartment and up and down the hallways and the stairs and in the elevators while juggling bowling and other bowls or bowling pins or chairs 
with people sitting in them who were also juggling bowling and other bowls or bowling pins or chairs with more people in them who are juggling those things too, only to have us all come crashing down into a tangled pile of bodies on the floor as the Flying Walendas and the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey's circus did while trying the same thing, just for people as amusement and to make my podcast more interesting. And they have to take my word for it that all that is really happening, which is no worse than amusing people with all of these other histrionics and showmanship just to sell our subject to them. Mike's view of himself as a producer, or even a Hollywood producer, is his own business, and more power to him, and good luck with that. But I can't be the star of his next production, and I'm not interested in doing that. I am not interested in entertaining or amusing my listeners, but only in expressing my outrage over the actions, words, and thinkings of these pederast and homosexual priests and bishops and getting them to join me in that as peacefully, soothingly, and calmingly as possible so as not to stir people up to any more than they already are about this and contribute to that. I'm doing the best that I can with this, and that will have to be good enough. This is all that I feel like talking about this right now, and so having got this off my chest, I will now proceed to the reading of the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 4, pages 854 to 859, and then to my comments, and then to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which I will announce each in turn. This is the start of my reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, pages 854 to 859. Brio withdraws case against Ruger. In August 2003, Brio asked his attorney, Daniel Shea, to withdraw from his case. Shea did so on September 12, 2003, after 18 months of legal work on Brio's behalf. This dramatic move paved the way for Brio to move for dismissal of his case in court. On November 19, 2003, Mr. Brio appeared before Judge Tina S. Page of the Worcester Superior Court to petition for dismissal of his case against Bishop Ruga and the Diocese of Worcester without prejudice, meaning that the case can be reactivated at a later date, although such action is rare. In a handwritten motion, Brio, without legal counsel, stated that he withdrew the charges voluntarily and without threat. He stated Trooper Tom Green, a captain for the State Police Detective Bureau, operating under Conti's office, told him to take the action. He said that Green also assured him that the dismissal of the civil suit would have no effect on the criminal investigation that is ongoing. Diocesan officials included Bishop Riley and Ruger, including Bishop Riley and Ruger, expressed their elation in a press release the following day. As of June 2004, Bishop Ruger is listed by the Worcester Diocese as a moderator of the Curia and vicar for education. The assumption 
That is that Bishop Ruga is innocent of the charges brought against him by Mr. Bryo until he is proven guilty in a court of law. The problem for Bishop Ruga is that Worcester diocesan officials have been acting as if he were guilty. It may be that Ruga is innocent of the Bryo charges, but guilty of having homosexual relations with young men if not minus, and we know for sure that he aided in the sexual cover-ups that have plagued the Worcester Diocese for years. As for Mr. Bryo, it has been revealed that he once worked as an undercover agent for District Attorney Conte. Was the Ruger lawsuit a ruse to get Houston Attorney Daniel Shea out of the DA's hair? This case has more twists and turns than any piece of mystery fiction. Perhaps the Thomas H. Texar case that is expected to be tried in Texas that names Bishop Ruger individually as a defendant will shed some additional light on the Bryo case that has, at least for the time being, been withdrawn. Bishop Robert H. Brown, Diocese of San Diego. Like many homosexual bishops in Amchurch, Bishop Brown's clerical career progressed relatively rapidly. Born in Arcadia, Wisconsin, on September 18, 1938, young Brown attended St. Mary's College and Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona, Minnesota. He attended the Gregorian University in Brown, in Rome, and was ordained a priest of the Winona Diocese in Rome on December 18, 1963. Winona is a small rural diocese in Minnesota. On May 23, 1983, Bishop Brown was ordained Bishop of Duluth by fellow homosexual Archbishop John R. Roach of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Six years later, on April 22, 1989, the Vatican announced the appointment of Bishop Brown as coadjutor Bishop of San Diego with right of succession to assist the ailing Bishop Leo Maher, who was suffering from brain cancer. Although there were high-level Minnesota, Minnesota diocesan officials who knew that Brahm had been charged with sexually abusing seminarians at Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona, these officials were silent when the Holy See appointed Brahm head of the San Diego Diocese. As for the Holy See, the record shows that Vatican officials also knew that Brown was sexually molesting seminarians at Winona, but promoted him to the Diocese of San Diego nevertheless. Ironically, it was rumored that the Vatican had sent Bishop Brown to San Diego to clean up the homosexual mess at St. Francis de Sales Collegiate Seminary associated with the University of San Diego. After Bishop Maher died on February 23, 1991. Bishop Brown became the ordinary of San Diego. He continued to reside at St. Francis Seminary. Bishop Brown is the chairman of the USCCB's Ad Hoc Committee on Bishops, Life and Ministry, and a spokesman for Amchurch on issue of predatory bishops who abuse minors and adults under their care. The USCCB seven-member task force, headed by Brown, is reported to be developing protocols for exercising mutual Episcopal responsibility in the realm of Episcopal 
sexual abuse and misconduct, the accusations against Brom. Bishop Brom was part of the Bernardine homosexual loop. One of his victims called him a homosexual rapist. The summary case against him is pretty straightforward. In the 1980s, Bishop Brom was charged with sexually molesting seminary students at Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona, along with other bishops and priests, including Archbishop Joseph Bernadine. Brom pressured one of his victims to sign a retraction statement in order to obtain hush money from the settlement. The details of these charges did not come to light until March 13, 2002. In connection with an affidavit in favor of an employee of the Catholic San Diego, San Diego News Notes, a traditionalist Catholic newspaper that was threatened with a lawsuit filed by the Diocese of San Diego and its ordinary Bishop Brom. It is here that we begin our review of the Brom case. News Notes, which has faithfully reported on the modernist revolution in the San Diego Diocese, has been a thorn in the side of Bishop Brom for years. When the bishop decided to file a nuisance suit seeking a restraining order against the newspaper's photographer, Robert W. Kumpel. As part of Kumpel's defense on March 13, 2002, his attorney, Richard J. Vatuan, obtained a statement from Mr. Mark Brooks in Chapter 15 of Lead Us Not Into Temptation, author Jason Barry covers the difficulties that Brooks experienced in San Diego's diocesan seminary under Bishop Leo Maher. Brooks, a native of Baltimore and an ex-Marine and teacher, was a late vocation to the priesthood. In August 1980, at the age of 26, he entered St. Francis Seminary in San Diego after he completed his last tour of duty. It was his lifelong dream to become a priest. As Brooks told Barry, it soon became apparent that seminary life at St. Francis had undergone a radical change both in theology and morals since the pre-Vatican two days. Aquinas was out and Kohlberg was in. The age-old traditional warning against forming particular friendships was replaced by faculty insistence on the value of intimate male bonding and close male relationships. Homosexual acting out by staff, faculty, and seminarians was not simply ignored. It was encouraged. In one case, a seminarian in his late 30s took a 16-year-old boy to live with him. In another case, Father Nicholas Reveals, a predatory homosexual priest who taught music at the University of San Diego, was reported to have seduced a large number of seminarians at St. Francis Seminary. One of the seminarians that Reveals corrupted said, those of us who had been through it with him would see the next class of freshmen and he'd pick out one he liked. They're together in chapel, then he's driving Nick's car. Then all of a sudden the guy is dropped. How do you say to someone, be careful, said the seminarian. In 1984, Reveals made the unfortunate mistake of trying to recruit Brooks. The ex-Marine said he went to the priest's apartment next to the university campus to confront his chief abuser. He said that it appeared that Reveals was watching porn and sipping wine in his living room with another man, a sitting bishop and well-known theologian. 
Books said that he was also personally sexually harassed and propositioned a dozen times by one of his counselors, Father Stephen Dunn, who served as vice rector of, at St. Francis. When Brooks complained to Dunn, who was also his spiritual advisor, he was advised to lighten up that St. Francis was a school of love. The ex-seminarian also recalled that for a while there was a coffin kept in the storage room where some of the kinkier students acted out their aberrant, more aberrant aberrant and occult homosexual fantasies. Brooks was eventually expelled from the seminary by Dunn following a brief mandated stay at a rehabilitation center for alleged alcoholism. The center released him after three weeks, stating that Brooks was not suffering from alcoholism, but from post-traumatic stress syndrome. In 1984, after St. Francis officials refused to give him a recommendation to another seminary, Brooks filed a civil damage suit against the seminary, the diocese of Bishop Maher. In May 1985, diocesan attorneys negotiated a $15,000 settlement, $15, settlement with Brooks. He dropped his suit and his $9,000 and back tuition was waived. Brooks temporarily moved to Baltimore and took on a secular occupation. He returned to California in the early 1990s. In September 1993, when he was living in Los Angeles, Brooks arranged to meet with Cardinal Moher, Cardinal Mahoney, on the recommendation of Bishop John Kinney of Bismarck in North Dakota chairman of the newly established NCCB Ad Hoc Committee on Sexual Abuse. Brooks naively poured out his heart and his evidence, Mahoney to Mahoney, concerning the problems at St. Francis Seminary, as well as information related to the sex abuse charges against Brown and Bernardin and company in Winona. Brooks said that Mahoney took copious notes a statement one would have no difficulty believing given Mahoney's close connections to Amchurch's homosexual collective. In return, the seemingly grateful Mahoney offered to smooth the way for Brooks to study for the priesthood in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. The two men continued their correspondence until 1997 when Brooks reached a settlement with Brom and the San Diego Diocese on a final final settlement of the St. Francis Seminary debacle. It had been at, Mahogany's, been at Mahoney's suggestion that Brooks entertain an open line of communication with Brom on the sex abuse problems at the St. Francis Seminary. Bishop Brom referred to the negotiated settlement of $120,000 to be paid in installments with Brooks as pastoral outreach. The settlement contained a strict confidentiality agreement, which served as a signal to Mahoney that he could dump Brooks without any adverse ramifications, and he promptly did just that. Brooks kept a copy of the diocese's canceled checks for evidence. There was one good thing beside the financial settlement that came out of the Brown-Brooks dialogue. Brooks remembered that during their conversations, Brom systematically expressed an intense criticism 
and obsession with the San Diego News Notes, who voiced frequent criticism of the rampant, rampant clerical homosexuality and pederasty in the San Diego Diocese under Brown. Brooks reported that the bishop had ordered all diocesan officials not to speak to News Notes reporters. This is one reason that when Bishop Brown Corporation sold through a nuisance lawsuit at News Notes, investigator, investigative reporter Robert Kumpel, attorney Richard Batuon obtained a sworn affidavit from Brooks on Bishop Brown's long-standing feud with the Catholic newspaper. In his sworn statement of March 12, 2002, Brooks mentioned publicly for the first time that he had spoken by phone with a former seminarian from Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona named Jeffrey Morass, who confirmed that while Bishop of Duluth, Brooks had coerced him into a four-year sexual relationship. Morass told Brooks that he could identify Brahm from the markings on his private. Morass, desperately in need of money, agreed to enter into a confidential financial settlement with Brahm in exchange for a fraudulent retraction letter that he was forced to write as a condition for receiving financial compensation from the bishop. Brooks said that in or about February 1999, in one of his dialogues with the bishop, he asked Brahm about the Morass accusations. The bishop retorted that Morass was mentally ill and or a liar, even though he, Brahm, admitted that the former seminarian had passed two polygraph examinations. Brooks said that Brahm, like many homosexuals, had a vindictive personality and his modus operandi was one of blame and retaliation by any means. When the San Diego Union Tribune picked up the Monona story, Brahm issued a statement through his public relations agent, Bernadine Carr, who denied the allegation that Brahm had sexually abused seminarians at Immaculate Heart Seminary when he was Bishop of Duluth and that no money was paid out, only a minimum insurance money. Big mistake. On March 21, 2002, two fellow bishops confirmed that in the mid-1990s, they were involved in a legal settlement of a claim that Bishop Brom coerced a seminarian into having sex when he, Brom, was Bishop of Duluth. One bishop, Archbishop Roger L. Schweitz, a priest of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, now Archbishop of Cambridge, Alaska, who was appointed by the Vatican to succeed Brahm as Bishop of Duluth on December 12, 1989, after affirming the accusation, added that the seminarians who received the, who leveled the charges, retracted them in order to claim that the under $100,000, actually $75,000 settlement. A portion of the retraction Maras signed read, following careful investigation by many attorneys working independently, hard facts have been brought to light which contradict the former seminarian's allegations and disprove what he thought he had remembered. Having no other claims for misconduct against bishops, priests, and institutions, he freely retracts each and every allegation and claim against each of them and welcomes the assistance 
provided herein toward a healthy life. Pardon? How is it possible for an adult man with intellectual and moral qualities sufficient to qualify him as a candidate for the priesthood to not remember the identity of a bishop or bishops who used him as a sex slave and sodomized him for over four years against his will? Either Maras was telling the truth about Brahm or he was not. As James Bendel, attorney for Roman Catholic faithful, has stated, why would any individual negotiate a financial settlement with seminarians who are making false charges against a bishop? Serious charges, I might add. To me, it's incomprehensible that someone could pay up to $100,000 to another who falsely accuses him of sexual misconduct, said Bendel. The second bishop who confirmed the payment to Brown was to Maras, by Brown to Maras was Archbishop John G. Lasney of Portland, Oregon, who was Bishop of Winona when the case was settled. Lasney, yet another Bernardine boy, was a native of Chicago. He was ordained an auxiliary bishop of the Chicago Archdiocese by Cardinal Bernardine on October 18, 1983. When questioned about the Brooks Revelation, Lasney informed reporters that the retraction by the seminarian was a condition insisted on by the Duluth Diocese, meaning Brahm and Schweitz, not the Winona Diocese, in return for the settlement. Bishop Blasney said that the former seminarian, Maraz, also accused other top prelates, including Joseph Cardinal Bernardin, of forcing seminarians to have sex with them. At the time, Blasney said he did not place much credibility and the accuracy of the charges against him and the other prelates because they were just too bizarre to believe. He said that an inquiry into the charges by his judicial vicar cast doubt on the accuracy of the accusations against Brown and the other fellow bishops. He said that the settlement of less than $100,000 was paid by the Winona Diocese that was responsible for the operation of the seminary and Brahms' former diocese of Duluth. Asked why any bishop would settle a serious charge of sexually corrupting seminarians if there were hard facts that disproved the accusations, Blasny stated he viewed the settlement not as a matter of justice, but as a matter of charity. Not that Blasny was in a novice when it came to covering up sexual misconduct in his own diocese of Winona. It was a responsibility of Father now Monsignor Gerald Mahan, the bishop's vicar general and top aide to handle alleged cases of clerical sex abuse in the diocese. Mahan had been rector of Immaculate Heart Seminary for 17 years and was part of the diocesan team that Blasny inherited when he became Bishop of Winona. Yet Mahan was himself accused of the homosexual corruption of two seminarians and two lawsuits that were settled privately and without public publicity in out-of-court settlements by the Diocese of Winona under Blasny, who described the $100,000 or so payouts as having only nuisance value. On July 3, 2002, Bishop, on July 3, 2002, Brahm made still another big mistake. 
at a news conference following the UC, USCCB Dallas meeting in, on clerical sex abuse by priests and religious, but not by bishops or cardinals, Bishop Brown told reporters at a news conference in San Diego that there had been no large financial settlements of sexual misconduct in the diocese since 1990 when he was made coadjutor bishop. The bell is out of order, but anyway, I'm going on to my commentary right now. My reading has been from the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volumes 4, Volume 4, pages 854 to 859, and today is Wednesday, May 12, 2021. My opinion about the so-called priests and bishops hasn't changed. They aren't, they aren't priests and bishops at all, but only actors from central casting who are merely playing the roles of priests and bishops in their own movies directed by themselves, the same as those clergymen who are practicing corruption in all other areas. They should all be sent to prison, not to other parishes where they can get a crack at other children. Counseling isn't any good for them either, since if counseling could bring them out of their pedophilia and homosexual relations with other priests, they would already have come out of those things because they are surrounded by and sharing every day the good counsel of the church, the saints, and the sacraments. And still they continue in all these, those practices. Send them to prison where the convicts will, especially if they find out that these priests molested young boys or girls, make sure that they never get a chance to molest anyone else ever again by ending their miserable lives. Convicts don't have very many morals at all, but someone's molesting any children is crossing the line even for them, and they will do to those who commit such acts if they get their hands on them what society fails to do to them. This is all my comments for today since my opening comments were so long. It's long past time to stop pussyfooting around with these sick people and give them what they have coming to them. As Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones, these those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18.6 So Jesus believed in the death penalty for these sick priests and bishops too. And now, without another bell ringing, I'm going on to a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Article 6, Moral Conscience. I'm reading a 17, section 1776, 1777, 1778, 1779, 1780, 1781, and 1782. 1776, deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey, his voice ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Number one, the judgment of conscience, 1777. Moral conscience 
present at the heart of the person and joins him at the appropriate moment to do good and to avoid evil. It also judges particular choices, approving those that are good and denouncing those that are evil. It bears witness to the authority of truth in reference to the supreme good to which the human person is drawn, and it welcomes the commandments. When he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. 1778. Conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. In all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. It is by the judgment of his conscience that man perceives and recognizes the prescriptions of the divine law. Conscience is a law of the mind, yet Christians would not grant that it is nothing more. I mean that it was not a dictate, nor conveyed the notion of responsibility, of duty, of a threat, and a promise. Conscience is a messenger to him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil, teaches and rules by his representatives. Conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. 1779. It is important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience. This requirement of interiority is all the more necessary as life often distracts us from any reflection, self-examination, or introspection. Return to your conscience, question it, turn inward, brethren, and in everything you do, see God as your witness. 1780. The dignity of the human person implies and requires uprightness of moral conscience. Conscience includes any percep- includes the perception of the principles of morality, synderesis, their application in the given circumstances by practical discernment of reasons and goods, and finally judgment about concrete acts yet to be performed or already performed. The truth about the moral good stated in the law of reason is recognized practically and concretely by the prudent judgment of conscience. We call that man prudent who chooses in conformity with this judgment. 1781. Conscience enables one to assume responsibility for the acts performed. If man commits evil, the just judgment of conscience can remain within him as the witness to the universal truth of the good at the same time as the evil of his particular choice. The verdict of the judgment of conscience remains a pledge of hope and mercy. In attesting to the fault committed, it calls to mind the forgiveness that must be asked, the good that must still be practiced, and the virtue that must constantly that must be constantly cultivated with the grace of God. We shall reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. 1782. Man has the right to act in conscience and in freedom so as personally to make moral decisions. He must not be forced to act contrary to his conscience, nor must he be prevented from acting according to his conscience, 
especially in religious matters. And this is all that I have to read or comment on right now. And so I'll end my podcast here. Uh, May God bless this podcast and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.